Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to Welcome smartpeoplepodcast.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Smart People Podcast. This is Chris. And this is John. Thanks for joining us today. It's a pretty awesome show, I must admit myself, because I helped create it. Have we ever said, this show sucks? No, you can't say that. This episode is not so good. (laughs) Oh my god, that's actually really funny. I want to do that one time. I want to record a crappy episode (laughs) and just open with this. I'm going to be honest... Turn us off. (laughs) Turn off your iPod. No, but really, this one's cool, depending on if you're into health, nutrition, marketing, branding, mind games, McDonald's. How can Mm. you not be into that? We know what John's into. I'm into, well, I used to be into the McDonald's. I can't pass those beautiful golden arches without thinking I want something. I can. You can? Yeah, I I definitely have been able to. There was a time, I mean, college and high school. Well, what about about their fries? Their fries are okay. I mean, they're amazing. They're know. all right. They're not Chick-fil-A fries, but oh, oh boy. I, I think I oh should no. open a can of worms. All right, we're going to steer away from that. So uh, this week, we talked to Dr. Brian Wansink, and it's pretty funny. I know we say this a lot, but reading through his bio is reading through, it's the equivalent of reading through something I wish, like I wish I did something with my life. He has 30 different degrees. He's got a PhD from Stanford and a... MA from somewhere else and he's he BS and he's taught at Wharton and teaches at Cornell and he runs a, a food and brand lab at Cornell, which does all this cool research regarding why we eat what we eat, you know, how they trick us by putting 10 little potato chips in a huge bag or I don't know, things like that. He writes for Food Think with Wansick on prevention.com. And, you know, he was just elected the president of the Society for Nutrition, Education, and Behavior. It's a one-year term, but... No big deal. Yeah, no big deal. He was just selected by the president. 
And well, no, that was for something else. Oh, really? That's when he was appointed as the executive director of, of the USDA's Center for Nutrition Policy and Promotion. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this guy knows his stuff. Actually, I think it's cool. ABC News referred to him as the food psychologist. And that's really cool because he, you know, he's not all about you can't eat this. He's like the first guy we've talked to in terms of nutrition and health who doesn't say you can't eat this. He just says kind of here's some things you should know about how you eat, why you eat, and what you can do about it. And that stuff's really interesting. Like a couple of small examples he goes over, moving from a 12-inch to a 10-inch plate. We all know that that helps, but how much? You're going to eat 22% less. The average person makes between 200 and 300 food decisions a day. I mean, there's all these crazy things that you don't know about, and it can get a little intense. And we talked to him about that, but he says, look, don't stress it. Here's a couple cool ideas. Yeah, and let's be honest, both you and I have tried crazy diets. We've done everything under the sun, and you're not going to give up M&M's. I can't. It's just not going to happen. What are you not going to give up? Uh, You have no food vices? I'm trying to think. I mean, I like the occasional ice cream, but living in the same house as you, I have seen more sugar (laughs) consumed. I like sugar. In in one day than I've ever... I mean, there are kids that get less candy on (laughs) Halloween than I see you eat, you know, when we're watching TV. I went to the grocery store the other day with my girlfriend, and she got tomatoes, a loaf of bread, um, some basil, I think it was, because she eats, like, twigs and berries. I got O's, you know, the cereal, O's. I got two bags of M&M's. I got some chocolate milk. And I think yogurt for good measure. That's my that's my trip to the store. Nice. No, but that's not. I mean, I eat healthy. It's just yeah, I do eat. have I do have that little sugar kick. So yeah, again, uh, we're gonna talk to Brian today. He's awesome. He wrote a book recently. It's called Mindless Eating, and it's it's fantastic. It goes through all of this in more depth. If this is your thing, I mean, nobody knows more about the topic than him. Mindless eating: Why we eat more than we think. Uh, We'll now go ahead and turn it over to our interview with Brian Wansink, PhD. Well, Brian, first, thanks for being on the show. Really appreciate it. I think the first thing I want to dive right in, and it's interesting how you mesh psychology and economics with nutrition. Usually we have people on that just deal with the nutritional value of foods and things like that, but you're all about why we eat what we eat. Is that right? Yeah, you're right on target. You know, when I was a little boy, I was growing up in Iowa, we'd uh, sell vegetables door to door. I know it sounds cool. It sounds way too cool, but that's what I did as a little boy in a wagon. And one thing I realized is that you could have a load full of uh, tomatoes in your in your wagon. One house would buy every single one you had. The next house would look at you like you're carrying kryptonite. <laughs> and these were, you know, people who were demographically, you know, identical, and right. they had a similar background, similar upbringing, but had very opposite views toward toward how to eat. And I realized kind of at that point that this is really neat. You know, the smartest people we know in the world that you know have an answer for everything, mm-hmm. but it comes down to it can't explain to you why they ate what they ate today for lunch. Hmm. <laughs> and that has massive implications for health. Right. If and we can go ahead. figure out why we do things when it comes to food, when we do things, and what we can do to nudge in a different direction. 
man, we've got the world by the tail. Yeah, and it's crazy. Like you mentioned, and I, I saw in your book, you talk about how many food decisions, food-based decisions we make in a day, yet we don't even think about them. I mean, aside from water, it is like the substance of life, yet we kind of just treat it as it's no big deal. Yeah, no, that's right. That, that, and uh, in mindless eating, one of the studies that we had, we had done is we had uh, we went about assessing how many food decisions people make a day. And it's a lot different for everybody, but for most people, it's between 200 and 300 different decisions about food a day. But if you were to ask most of us how many times we make a decision about food, we'd, most of us would say around 25. But what we're like keeping in mind is it's not just whether we have you know Fruit Loops versus Cheerios. It's how much we pour, it's whether we eat it all, it's what sort of milk we put on it, how much milk we put on it. And we make 30 decisions before we have our first bite of breakfast almost. Mm. And I, I think the key thing is that when we don't realize we're making these decisions, there's an incredible possibility for the cues around us to essentially influence us and mess us up. You know, often we miss to overeat. And those cues can be everything from you know, lighting to the size of our bold to the size of the package we're pouring from, what the person is doing next to us, whether we're reading the paper, what we're reading. All these things really subtly tweak us in just a little direction. And, you know, 40 more calories today than we typically eat, which is going to result in us gaining about four pounds by the end of the year if we do it every day. And it's, it is crazy because today I was thinking about it. I was I was hungry around after lunch, about an hour after lunch, surprisingly, and I went and I grabbed some Doritos. And I'd like to think I'm one of the type of people that cares about what I eat. But, I mean, it was and, – and the thing that I want to ask you is I have too much other stuff going on. I can't think about every food decision I make. So is there a point that it just gets out of control? I mean, you tell me I have to make 250 decisions a day, and I'm going to just give up. You know what I mean? No, you – yeah, that's right. That's right. What was interesting, when, when the book Mindless Feeding first came out, a lot of people, you know, I would talk to people, journalists and reporters would say, so then, the solution to mindless eating is mindful eating. <laughs> and it is absolutely wrong for most of us. I mean, for, for, it works for some people, but for 90% of us, we've got full-time jobs. You know, we're coming home at nighttime with like 15 things in a to-do list to do after dinner time. The kids are screaming. The microwave's buzzing. We don't have time to essentially, you know, cut the pea in half and taste the pea and put our fork down. Ow! It would be a great way to enjoy food more if we were more mindful. But for most of us, the solution isn't mindful eating. It's just setting up our immediate environment so we can mindlessly eat, but mindlessly eat less instead of eating more. Wow. What type of pointers or hints can you give our listeners to have us eat less? I mean, I've always heard things from sure. smaller plates, smaller bowls, and those kind of things, but are there other small tricks that can be done that, you know, will help us consume less calories each day? Well, there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of them, and we did all that research in the small plates and the small bowls, but what's important to realize is that usually when people try to change something, they try to change just Everything. It's like, today I shall transform my life. And, and they, <laughs> they launch into doing everything right. And it works for about 36 hours. And then you kind of go, oh, forget it. This is crazy. But the first thing you need to do is you need to identify, you know, you can call it your dietary danger zone, but you need to identify where it is that you mess up most. And there's five major areas 
where people overeat. Now, you'll be able to identify, most normal people could identify with all five of these. When I tell them, what we need to realize is there's just really one, maybe two, that are really most troubling to a person at this time in their life. Okay, So one of them is meal stuffing. Okay, That's eating way too much for dinner, for lunch, or whatever. Uh, second one is snack grazing. You're continually picking at stuff and eating all day. The third ends up being restaurant indulging, eating too much restaurants. Fourth is party binging, and that's not just alcohol. It can just be, you know, you having that that Dorito pack. Oh, yeah. Having seven of those. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the last is is what we call, in mindless eating, desktop or dashboard dining. And essentially, it's, it's, it's munching away while you're doing something else. And the thing is, what's a person that says, hey, you know, we're... I think I really fall down most is X. It might be meal stuffing, for instance. Then the whole thing is saying, okay, what specific thing could I do that would give me less to eat, or that would give me to eat less at meals, but that wouldn't make me feel like I was putting myself out, or that I was depriving myself in some ways. And for some, if your problem is just too large of servings, something as simple as using a, a smaller plate would work. I mean, we found that people end up eating, serving and eating about uh, 22% less if they drop from a 12-inch plate, which is kind of the size most of us have, down to about a 9.5 or 10-inch plate. It could be used in smaller serving spoons. We find that actually decreases how much people eat by about 14%. The problem is... Uh, you know, maybe you go back for seconds or thirds or fourths. You can say, geez, what could prevent me from going back to seconds or thirds or fourths? And when mindless eating, we talk about a, a bunch of things. But um, one of the ones we found decreases how much a guy eats by about 18%. Is simple as the serving bowl is six or more feet away from the table. <laughs> so these are, these are the real easy things that can get you to eat less without feeling deprived. Because it's when you feel deprived, that's when things backfire. That's yeah. when you kind of go, okay, forget it. And, you know, and, or you end up saying, this is not worth it, and you end up uh, you know, <laughs> taking that Ben and Jerry's pint and just eating it without a spoon yeah. <laughs> later on that night. <laughs> Absolutely, and that that's what I wanted to speak on is the deprivation part, because I know that I've done the meal stuffing stuff before where I'll have a huge dinner or a huge lunch and I try to cut back in the number of calories and my body, you know, immediately gets mad at me the first few times that I do that where I'll get the headaches or I'll, you know, feel dizzy yeah. and that kind of stuff. How long do you give yourself to get over these tricks that your body's playing on you? Because, oh. you, you know, like your body's yeah. expecting a certain amount and if you're not getting it, I mean... How long would you recommend somebody trying to stick to something to see where their actual calorie total mm -hmm. should sit at for each meal? Oh, no time at all. Don't even try it. I think for, for most people, it's not worth it because you're just, we don't have the wherewithal to stick with it. I mean, some people really do. Some people really have that. Most of us don't. What we found, and this is my research up in the Cornell Food and Brand Lab, and this is this is actually this actually was one of the things that stimulated part of uh, part of my writing of mindless eating, was that we found that you could adjust how much somebody eats up to about 20% of what they typically would eat, either up or down, without really them knowing it. But beyond then, 
people start realizing it. So for instance, let's say that the typical person needs 2,000 calories a day through whatever means, whether it be you know, the stuff we do in the lab or the stuff we do in field studies. If we gave people 400 calories more, that's 20% more, 400 calories more, 2,400 calories, they would say, oh my God, I'm feeling, oh, I'm feeling bloated. Man, I was, I'm, I'm really full. But less than that, 2,300, they don't really know the difference. Similarly, you can cut the amount of calories that you give somebody by 15 to 20%, and they don't realize it either. So if uh, somebody usually eats 2,000 calories, all of a sudden eats 1,700, well, they don't realize it. If there's nothing to tell them that they've eaten less, they don't really seem to pick up on it. But you get down to 1,600 calories, and you're going, oh, my God, I got a headache. I, just, I, you know, I, I know something's wrong. So the key is to stay within what we call mindless eating, this mindless margin, okay? It's this margin where your mind doesn't really, and your body, doesn't realize it's doing anything different than it usually is. And as long as you stay within that, within that margin, you don't have, there's no adjustment period. You know, there's no, if I can just, you know, muscle through the next three weeks, you know, I'll, I'll be fine. No, yeah. you don't have to do that at all. That's the key okay. to small changes. Well, speaking about kind of muscling through some, some changes, and I know you, you talk about, in your book, you talk about uh, mental and emotional factors that cause us to eat. And, you know, when I think about myself, I don't eat mm-hmm. when I'm angry or tired or whatever, but what I do do all the time is I eat sugar, like nonstop. I eat any, and, yeah. and people tell me, oh, you know, you wouldn't eat that much if you let yourself or whatever. And I would. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, I would. Uh, I can eat that Ben and Jerry's pint, and then I can have some M&Ms, and then I can have chocolate milk. I can just do it. So And then some insulin. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the point is, I mean, I like to think I have some willpower, but is there a reason behind that? Is it, am I being tricked or am I just so bored at my life that I need to eat all this sugar? I just need some help here. <laughs> no, no. Um, well, see, there's a number of things that are going on, but one of them is largely a behavioral script. Okay. If it's for the same reason I drink, God, I drink more Diet Coke and Diet Pepsi a day than, than, six people you know but it's not because i need it it's because what is over the years it's become sort of a script or a habit in the same way if somebody comes home from work you know, the first thing they do when they come home from work is they open the refrigerator look in it see something they're not even really hungry see something they want take it need it it's just sort of a script if you led them into a different door that script wouldn't even happen and for um whatever sequencing reasons that have been going on in your life, that that is largely why you end up, I think, eating uh, you know, a lot more sugar because I think at some point, too, you develop this kind of a tolerance, whether it be a tolerance for caffeine in some people's case or a tolerance for sugar in your case. And so you can you know, essentially accommodate a lot more than a, than a typical person would. But I think so much of this is just driven by these behavioral patterns or scripts. And it means simply doing something that causes you to break the script. So let's say, for instance, you uh, tell, tell me when you're most likely to really eat tons and tons of sugar. I eat a lot of sugar right after I eat a meal. I don't mm, consider it de- okay. a dessert because I'll have it after okay. breakfast, lunch, and dinner. 
<laughs> okay. Well, so one thing, one thing you can do. So we have this little kind of this little clinical operation the site where we look at sort of sort of problem issues from people from about a, a hundred and twenty mile radius or whatever. But one thing you could do, for instance, in that case, is you could say, okay, well, I'm not going to say I can't have sugar because guess what you're going to be thinking about all afternoon? Mm-hmm. Sugar. Mm-hmm. But yep. what you need to do is put. Just a little barrier between you and sugars that you really provide proof to yourself as to how much you want it. So something like this you might say, "Hey, look, you know, I finished lunch. I'm gonna, I've got a hankering for a whatever, you know, a, a half cup of granulated sugar. But here's what I'm gonna do. I can have whatever I want to eat as long as I eat a piece of fruit before I eat that sugary thing. Hmm. Now, one of three things is gonna happen. Either you're gonna say, you know. Uh, man, I don't have any fruit, and I'm too lazy to walk down to the convenience store or wherever and buy it. So you're not you're going to say, okay, I guess I don't want sugar that bad. Or you're going to get that piece of fruit, for instance, and eat it and say, yeah, you know, I'm not that really that hungry for sugar anymore. Or the third thing might be you might eat the piece of fruit and then also have the sugary stuff. But that's the least likely of the three to happen. But you see, the idea is that you, you break the script by just saying, what can I put? What what little thing can I put? What little speed bump can I put between that me and that food? No, I like That's that. That's gonna make me say, you know, show me your love. Yeah. yeah. No, I like that. That's actually a good <laughs> idea because I've done that before in terms of I've had like a clementine, and then you're right. I don't tend yeah. to. I, I guess it works. Yeah but, yeah, but even if you don't even need the clementine, just the idea of saying, okay, you know, I don't have any food around me, and I can go get some. But yeah, I don't want to. So yeah, I guess I don't need the sugar that bad. Right, right. The worst, the worst you can do is the worst you can do is kind of the the typical, you know, um, strong-willed nutritionist thing of saying, just say no to the fruit. Use your willpower, Luke. Use your willpower. <laughs> you know, because that's what just goes totally south for most of us. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> After I have the no, first day, I have no willpower. I want to switch. <laughs> I want to switch. Switch gears a little bit and, and dive into something that you, I would consider probably the expert on out of, I don't know, anybody I know. But in terms of the way food companies trick us, I'd like to know the things that they do that sure. we don't see and that people everywhere don't see, but you know through your studies yep. at your lab, at the Food Brand Lab, that, that it happens. When you look at some of the things that happen, and indeed the food industry, there's a lot of things that happen in the food industry that unknowingly get us to eat more um, than we typically want. But what's important to realize is that a lot of what the food industry does is, is nothing different than what you and I would do. They have a lot of salt and fat and sugar and dairy and foods. Well, guess what your grandmother did that made you love going and seeing her for Thanksgiving so much? Well, she put a lot of fat and salt and sugar and <laughs> stuff in her dishes. It's what all of us do when we have dinner parties and we want people to leave happy. So... They're not doing that to make us fat. They don't care whether we get fat or not. What they care about is that we buy their food instead of somebody else's. You know, if it's just a, if it's a fast food company, they care that we kind of go in and shop there than the competitor across the street. They don't care whether we get the large fries and then throw them all away. All they care is that we come in there. So it's important to realize that there's no malintent. They don't want us fat. They want to make money. And if they could make five times as much money selling broccoli as they do french fries, you know, 
there'd be a broccoli king and then a burger king. <laughs> so I think that's important to realize because I think there's a lot of people out there who just say the food industry wants to make us fat. Like, no, they don't. They want to make money. And if you'll buy a higher margin item that has zero calories, holy cow, they'll sell it in an instant. And also, I, I think a lot of people believe that, that the food industry has these unbelievable um, you know, psychologists kind of working for them undercover, kind of in some covert, covert yes, lab. And, yes, and I know they somewhere. do. <laughs> 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 That's right. You know, in reality, we've done a lot of work and given a lot of talks to these, and, and oftentimes they are so, so, so far behind the curve of a lot of the research that we're doing that it, it makes some of, uh, you know, my people really shocked. I mean, because they're thinking much more about Monday morning problems than they are these deep psychological things. But that doesn't mean that they don't stumble across some really cool, effective things. But But oftentimes it's not because they they know why they work or um, it's mainly just because they, they've seen that it does work. I'll give you an example. So we, we did this, uh, this really, really, really cool study. This is this back in the, in the 90s on um, what's called numerical pricing. So limit 12 per person or, you know, two for $2 versus one for $1, things like that, you know, signs that have numbers in them other than the price. And, and one thing we found, and these are pretty common in a lot of grocery stores, and one thing we ended up finding is that um, these numerical signs have incredible impacts on how much you buy. So if uh, we found if a sign says soup, limit 12 per person, and another sign says soup, no limit per person, people will buy about twice as much it says limit 12 than it will if it says nothing, because that, that number provides sort of an anchor. You say, hey, I don't need 12. I'm going to buy seven. <laughs> Otherwise, you'd buy three. Right, right. And, you know, things, and this is really, and it's the same thing if it says three for three, three cans of tuna fish for $3 versus one can for $1. Well, the, the industry knows this, and they, and they use this a lot, but they don't know why it works. It, it's something they basically, they don't know the psychology behind it. They sort of just stumbled across that when they do this, they sell more tuna fish and they sell more soup. It doesn't... It doesn't belie the tremendous power these things have on us. And, and again, for about 25 years, this is all I've studied. And, you know, I remember um, oh, about 15 years ago, I, we came out with that article on this you know, numerical unit pricing. And it's a big deal. We got all this press. And it really was, was a, a neat splash. And I remember I, I was going out on a picnic with a friend, and uh, we were buying some stuff at the grocery store. And... <laughs> and it said the sign said, you know, like gum, chewing gum, like a ten for a dollar or something like that. I don't know. And I, I'm, I'm counting these things out under the uh, on the conveyor belt next to the cashier. And my friend says, uh, "Hey, uh, didn't you just do this like big research paper on this?" I'm like, "Oops." <laughs> I'm counting them, putting them back. And then that's the power of these things we're talking about, whether it be signs in stores, whether it be the size of bowls, whether it be what the person is doing next to us. These things have such a subtle core impact on us that to say, great, now that I know it, it shan't influence me, is is total fiction. It, it, I mean, it, it influences the people who study it, you know, 18 hours a day. 
I have to quickly ask you something about McDonald's. This just popped into my mind, but I used to get one dollar double cheeseburgers all the time. And then I remember there was a yep. huge stink when McDonald's raised their price to a dollar twenty nine. Everybody was up in arms about it, saying, Oh my gosh, the dollar menu <laughs> double cheeseburgers a dollar twenty nine now. Have you seen any research or do you know anything on whether or not it actually really affected McDonald's sales on double cheeseburgers and if McDonald's really kind of dragged raising the price because they knew that they were going to sell however many less double cheeseburgers? <laughs> you know, I, I haven't seen any research on that, but a, a couple oh, things man. that I think are, are relevant is that it probably wouldn't influence the number of people, you know, your, your, how often you go to McDonald's. It just influence what you buy. You might now switch to the, I think it's... Um, Special number six, which is two uh, single cheeseburgers. Okay, uh, yep. and and you might, you might switch that, but I don't know about that. But I know that what they, what they do is, I mean, because that's that's my go-to thing when I go to McDonald's because it's on the dollar menu, and so it's pretty easy on the dollar menu. You say I'll get the double cheeseburger because it now costs a dollar. So <laughs> either they either they heard your plea, or they just decided <laughs> to drop it anyway. <laughs> that is pretty funny. Leave yeah. it to John to ask that kind of I, question. But I, I love those sandwiches, Brian. I gotta ask oh, you. Oh God, I know they're they're amazing. Yeah, you, you seem like you know you're you're eating your frozen pizza and you you know the McDonald's <laughs> menu on the back of your hand. I mean, it seems like you you know all this stuff, but you still eat kind of what you want as long as you're cognizant of it. That seems like your message, and if it is, I feel like that's something everyone can do. Oh, it's real easy. I mean, in, in fact, being cognizant is not even really the thing. Because that's what every dietitian, or most dietitians in the world would say, be cognizant, be cognizant, be cognizant. But just, again, that's just not going to work for us. You know, I, we don't have the the time and the mental capacity. If If you are a nutritionist and what you do is that for your entire life, great, that is your job. Just like if you're a physical fitness trainer, you better darn well be in shape because that's your career. But if you're us, you know, we've, we've got all this other stuff going on, and food is, you know, it's 12% of our life, not 100% of our life. And uh, it's not, I think, realistic to think that we're going to obsess over how much riboflavin is going to be in our diet. <laughs> so as a result, the easiest thing to do is not to even to be cognizant of things. Just saying, okay, where do I mess up? Oh, God, I just eat way too much at dinner time. Right. Okay, what can I do? What, what's one or two changes I can make? Uh, and you might be aware of changes, or you might not. I, I think um, that's the thing about my book, Mindless Eating, is it gives a lot of easy changes that you can make that aren't going to make you feel deprived. But still, I think 30% of the people who come up to me at conferences or write letters or leave emails or whatever have come up with a really unusual change. And usually just one or two changes that they've made that's made a ton of difference, you know, 30 or 40 pounds in a year difference. And it wasn't being cognizant of things. It was just saying, okay, here's the one thing I'm going to do. I'm going to um, not sit down for uh, lunch or dinner unless there's a fruit or vegetable, a fruit and a vegetable on the table. Okay. Oh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to eat out of the Mongol breakfast bowl that I eat out of every day. I'm going to buy some smaller bowls. And, and people will say these things, and it's, it's amazing that if you listen to it from sort of the, the cold, sterile academic room, you'd say, well, that's ridiculous. That's just too simple. It couldn't work. But it's amazing the effect this stuff has day after day after day, really teeny changes. But, but what doesn't work for most of us are these massive wholesale 
turnarounds. You know, I will never, ever eat carbohydrate again in my life. <laughs> hey, that might work for three months. It might work for six months. But that's just too much of a burden to put on anybody, you know, that you, you really care for. Yeah, we've tried that. We did. And we it both was did not, that. It was not fun. <laughs> we didn't say that much. Yeah. Yeah. Not fun at all. <laughs> Why do I have a headache every uh, second of the uh, day? It was miserable. <laughs> Absolutely miserable. Brian, usually we ask this question at the beginning of the interview, but we'll, we'll switch it up a little bit this time. Sure. Um, we had mentioned right before the interview that you know we talked a little bit about you being appointed as the executive director of the USDA's Center for Nutrition Policy and Promotion. Yeah, um, yeah. C- can you kind of give us your background, how you got to that point? I mean, can you can you walk us down yeah, the path sure. of, of what you did? And then and then if I might yep, cut yep. in even a little more so as to that position specifically because it's so cool. I mean, that's we'd like to hear about that. So kind of the whole. Story condensed. <laughs> Your okay, whole life. Okay, well, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it was a dark and stormy yeah. night. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. So, so I've been obsessed with eating behavior since I was a little boy. I grew up in Iowa. My hero is Herbert Hoover. <laughs> wow. Because he grew up in Iowa and was orphaned as a little boy, and he, we learned, saved all of Western Europe from starvation after World War One. That, you learn that if you're from Iowa, okay? <laughs> and so my, my lifetime hero, uh, in fact, I asked my wife to marry him, uh, to marry me, at the place <laughs> where uh, he was buried. <laughs> yeah, the place where he was buried. Um, you know, went in, got my PhD in, in consumer behavior. But it just all I focused on was food. You know, I've been a professor doing all that. Um, wrote uh, Mindless Eating and became a, you know, very, very successful in many languages and stuff, and had done lots of research papers, and uh, was at, at uh, Washington and was was told, um, was kind of intercepted at one point and said, look, you're being considered for this position, and it's uh, unusual that it's not going to a nutritionist. You're being considered for it. We need to know whether you're interested in it before we go to the next steps. And it's really, it's really, it's really, really, I think, a cool story as to how things, you know, unraveled. If you want to know that, you can ask a follow-up, and I can tell you how it unraveled. But um, the short answer was I ended up being offered the position with about 18 months left in, in, the, in President Bush's term. And I, Cornell said they'd give me an 18-month uh, leave of absence to go do this. And but for some reason, I mean, I know I have a pretty, you know, a pretty unusual life, but for some reason, it took four months for them to give me security clearance. And <laughs> I don't know why that was. It's because the government. I was just going to say, I think that's typical government. government. I do, I do government contracting, and that's about how long it takes, uh, <laughs> takes us to get clearance on projects. Yeah. Oh, good, good, good. I'm not, I'm not feeling, I'm not feeling, you know, good. I'm not, not feeling bad now. Okay. Um, <laughs> But it gave me four months to come up with a plan as to what I wanted to accomplish when I got there. And then I had three things I wanted to do. Is the first thing was I wanted to turn the entire focus of the Center for Nutrition Policy and Promotion, not on just doing random stuff for every American, but focusing instead on what I call, my, my research calls, the nutritional gatekeeper. It's the person who purchases and prepares most of the food in the family. Because what our research has shown is that that person controls 
knowingly or unknowingly, 72% of everything the family eats, okay? Either for the better or the worse, you know, a cookie jar, bad, fruit bowl, good, things like that. And um, that was the first thing I wanted to do. And I, I proposed that there be a, just like there's a President's Council for Physical Fitness and Sports, I wanted to be a President's Council for Family Nutrition. And by proposing that, we came up with tools that focused only on parents or on this uh, nutritional gatekeeper. We stopped the work we did, we're doing in all these other areas and just focused on parents. The second thing I wanted to do is, uh, is to focus on companies and say, hey, look, there's a lot of things. The government's not that creative and not that nimble, but companies are both creative and nimble. So if we were to acknowledge companies that promoted the dietary guidelines in a creative way, there might be a lot of cool things they do. And so we started something called Partnering with My Pyramid. And within one year, uh, over 100 companies you know, signed up and came up with really cool ideas. I mean, some were pretty pedestrian, but others were really uh, novel about how to promote the dietary guidelines in a creative way to people. And the third thing, the third sort of thing I wanted to do when I was there was I wanted to export my pyramid, which is exporting the nutritional guidelines to all these other countries in the world, not necessarily to give them ours, but to give them one of two things. It would be either our guidelines if they wanted to use that as a starting point, or it could be the process, an incredibly rigorous process that we use to develop the dietary guidelines. And so, for instance, for Great Britain, we gave them the process we used, and they now use that process. For other countries, we just gave them our dietary guidelines, and they just worked from there, tweaking it to their cultural norms. So those are my three agenda items, and I think they were, I think they were pretty overly ambitious. But having had four months to like to work on them was was really a blessing in disguise. Because when I got there, I'm like, I don't want to hear any briefings at all. Here's what we're doing. <laughs> And the nice thing about being a political pointy is they could fire you the next day. And you'd say, okay, I got a great job back at Cornell. I'm making more money back then. Right. Bye-bye. <laughs> and so how did it all turn out? I mean, did it go out? Did you accomplish kind of what you set out to do there? Well, you know, a lot did. I mean, and unfortunately, um, the, the, the my plate thing then came out under uh, – it, it didn't come out right away under the prior administration. It came out under this administration. The uh, nutritional gatekeeper thing worked really well, but – uh, they didn't develop a second agency for the family for um, I mean, the President's Council for Family Nutrition. They folded into an existing one, which I've, I just told the White House a couple weeks ago, I think was a bad mistake. And then the third thing, um, uh, and then the companies, that worked really, really well. But then the new administration, when they came in, they disbanded that because they thought companies were, were you know, maybe using it. Um, and implying that they're healthy because they were helping the USDA. And then the um, exporting my pyramid, it, it's hard to know there. I mean, we had good contacts with about 30 different countries in the world, but um, but then I, I left, and it, it's more difficult to keep up with how the, things are evolving if you're no longer in the government because you can't say, well, the Secretary of Agriculture's office called, and they are requesting a meeting. You know, it's, it's harder to do that now right. than it was. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, Brian, I know um, we went a little longer than we expected, but, again, it's a topic that we really enjoy. So I thank you so much for being on the show. 
we're definitely going to recommend to our listeners, you know, your book, Mindless Eating, Why We Eat More Than We Think is incredible. Like you said, it's been wildly successful and it has um, a lot of great information in it. And I know that you have mindlesseating.org where people can check out more about that. Your own website at brianwansink.com. So is there anywhere else that you'd like people to check out or any any closing remarks? Yeah, you know, I think stay tuned. I think on on, um, on on March 19th of next year, I've got a I've got a book coming out. It's called a uh, Slim by Design, and um, it's uh, it, it focuses on our food radius and all the changes that we can make near us that can help not only us but the the, the institutions around us, whether it be grocery stores, restaurants, schools, or workplace or home, um, naturally more helpful and helping us eat a little bit better. You know, and that reminds me, actually, I wanted to bring this up, not even as necessarily part of the podcast, but I met Lawrence Williams, and he is, he founded the USHFC, United States mm-hmm. Healthful Food Council, and yes, um, yes. I've, I've been working, actually, John and I have both done some things for him trying to get it off the ground, and that's all about making restaurants and things like that kind of feel better about serving healthful food. And, and I know that he contacted you and, and, you know, yeah, it's a brilliant, brilliant idea. And it's an idea whose time has come. Well, I'm so glad you're on board. Cause I, you know, I've, uh, I've been working with him and I'm hoping to help him out cause I agree. So hopefully we'll, we'll talk more again in the future. Oh, I know we will. I know we will. You guys are a lot of fun. Absolutely. All right, Brian. Well, thank you again so much. And uh, best of luck on your new book. I'll be sure to check that out. And I know our listeners will uh, will enjoy that one as well. Great. All right. Thanks, well, Brian. Have a great rest of the summer. You bet. All right. You so, too. Bye-bye. Welcome back. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Brian Wansink. It was fun, but super informational. Hope you guys took away as much as Chris and I both did. And I just wanted to give parents out there a little reminder. And I know you're already thinking about this because you're getting all happy inside kids are getting ready to go back to school that means you need to buy school supplies that means you need to head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com click the amazon link and buy your school supplies there they're cheaper and we get a kickback and you don't have to go through the garbage of going to the store yeah i went to office depot the other day i wanted to stab myself in the eye there was kids throwing around spiral notebooks they were fencing with rulers oh it was absurd so just go on amazon boom yeah in your underwear and your boxers but make sure you go through our link appreciate that and also as you'll notice we didn't try to push anything on you in the intro and that's that's because you know what we didn't want to this week. We wanted to give you guys a little little ease into this episode, just to come back and hammer you in the outro. So, I'm only actually going to make one request: go to smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. It's in the upper right hand corner. You'll see a little button. John set it all up because he knows technology. And uh, you just have to. What do you have to do, Roach? What's the email thing? You have to put in your email, hit submit. It'll shoot you an email. And you just have to click the link in there to verify that you want the email and realize that you're not going to be getting spam. So make sure that when we send you the first email, you go open it up and verify that you want to continue receiving the newsletter. 
Just yeah. click the link in there. And that should be coming out within the next couple of weeks once we hit a critical mass of actually making it worth my time because it is going to be time consuming. But it's going to be cool. We'll, we'll be able to talk about some things we don't talk about on air. And we will most importantly let you know who we're interviewing in advance. And you can kind of join in the conversation, maybe submit some questions, and we'll, we'll tell you some things that the standard listener might not know. So definitely sign up for that. Other than that, thanks for joining us again this week. What? What? You got something? Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Seriously? Smart you just, Pod. You just crushed everything. Do everything that I say. Obey my dog. <laughs> thanks, guys. Catch you next week. <laughs>